0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So grateful that you're here again this week. And we're going to be devoting this week's show to both my hometown of New York City and to the lovely state of Connecticut next door that we always thought was kind of dull, but I have a guest coming on who will convince you otherwise. But we're going to start with New York and with a gentleman who has written a stunning, beautiful book called New Yorkers, A City and Its People in Our Time. His name is Craig Taylor. Hey, Craig, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show.
1: Thank you for having me. Thanks. Uh,
0: so I feel like you should be interviewing me for this book. You interviewed what, 75 New Yorkers, perhaps more, to get kind of a a, a mosaic look at the city through its people. Uh, were there more that you interviewed that ended up in the book or did everybody you talked to end up in the book
1: there was a lot of myths in the hidden myths of uh, of this process so i spoke to around 200 new yorkers altogether and some you know some of the conversations were minutes long some of them just didn't quite work out but i eventually chose 75 of those voices those people those great new yorkers to go in the book so those are the 75 voices you hear in, in New Yorkers.
0: And in the introduction to the book, you say there is some commonalities to what they all discussed with you. They all felt you had gotten to New York too late, that things used to be much, much better, and that you missed the heart of the city. And it's interesting. The fascinating thing about the book is it does go up to the pandemic. You were here during the pandemic, a time that's going to totally reshape the city. So do you think you were here too late? Or what does New York, the New York you discovered mean to you?
1: I loved the fact that I was told by so many people I was there too late. And sometimes it was, you know, I'd missed it by a year. I'd missed it by five years. I'd missed it by 30 years. And I think part of dealing with New York in any way is recognizing that its previous iterations are always so seductive. You can read E.B. White or Joseph Mitchell. The list goes on and on and really fall in love with these previous New Yorks. But you're, sure. you're given the New York of your time. You, you take what you're given. And so I liked to counter those people who told me that I'd missed it with, with the fact that I was here. I was in New York for, for a very important time and that my experience of the city, my New York, was just as rich even the greats didn't get some of the people that I got to speak to. So I felt good about about my New York. And your New York
0: seemed like the true New York, because as you say in the book, you didn't just speak with bold-faced names. You spoke with the lightly italicized ones, which meant that you really got the diversity of people in New York. You spoke with people in all the boroughs. You spoke with immigrants who come here from around the world, because this is an international city. How did you find the people that you wanted to speak with? How did you get such a diverse group?
1: I knew that I wanted to have a a great span of people in the book. I knew that there were certain types of people that were very important to hear from. And a kaleidoscopic project like this means that you can hear from all sorts of people, some of whom have an opinion you don't agree with, some of whom have a life experience very different from your own. So I knew that I wanted to include uh, an array. Uh, In order to get that array, I worked with a set of verbs that can be applied to New York City. And those verbs could include Hmm. things that are very practical, like policing New York or cleaning New York. But they could also... um, be somewhat abstract, so dreaming New York. And and that in that way I was led to people who were very much involved with the action of the city, who were enacting things every day so that they could talk about these these actions rather than just musing on the city. So the the verb list was always very helpful in order to get to people who were who were just actively remaking New York every single day.
0: Well let's talk about some of the specific people if you don't mind. It starts with a blind singer who describes New York through the sounds and the smells and is is a poet. Can you talk a little bit about him?
1: Um, Frank Sr., is a singer, as you mentioned, who is blind. I was incredibly lucky to to run into him. He became a very important part of the book. He opens the book, and and I wanted to um, begin the book with the five senses. I wanted to really bring people into the city, and and Frank was a perfect person to talk about the smells and the sounds of New York. In some ways he gives a history of New York through its smells, taking the reader back to the stink of Times Square in the seventies and eighties and walking them through the you know, the fragrant parts of Central Park, and taking them to a, a club where he used to sing, where he could smell the, the sort of sweat and spit on the instruments. I loved the way that he that he looked at the city and I felt like it was a very uh, just as such a vivid way of plunging into this place that is all about sights and sounds, but is very much a city alive with smell as well.
0: Yeah, the way he describes how he would get around on the sidewalk—it's like he's a live, the, the the city is this living organism that he has to tango with to keep himself safe. It was absolutely beautiful. You also spoke with a Yemeni. Bodega owner up in Brighton Beach, I think it was, which is part of the part of Brooklyn that is has a large uh, expat community from the Ukraine and from Russia. And he talked about he's a store owner, but the sense of community that he specifically was trying to build with his customers is something that I feel people don't know about New York. People who come to visit the big city think, oh my God, I could never live here. Nobody knows each other. Everybody's rushing around. But he brought to life what it is like to live here, I thought.
1: Absolutely. And Nassim very much saw his his work as being part of a community. And he, I think all New Yorkers know that they, they need these places where they can go to and be recognized in some way. And a bodega is a, a great example of a very casual but meaningful relationship that you can have with, with people who who know you enough, who recognize you enough, who sense your presence enough. And for Nassim, the, one of the great tragedies of the pandemic is the obliteration of this type of casual community, these conversations that unfold in a bodega. Um and that's been replaced by a kind of suspicion and an unfriendliness that, that for me was tragic because I, I had a deep, important relationship with, my, with the people who own my local bodega. So to see how that's evolved into customers coming in and tossing crumpled dollar bills at Nassim because they're so worried about the virus, that for me, you know, is a sad and hopefully temporary, you know, element of the city at the moment.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it has to be temporary.
1: You also uh,
0: spoke to some of the people with jobs that I've always wondered how they did it. Like uh, you spoke with a man who was a professional window washer going up these massive buildings. How did you meet him and, and tell us a little bit of his story?
1: I met him through his union. Uh, that was a, a great place to get in touch with some of these some of these um, interesting workers. And Marvin, for me, uh, you know was just emblematic of a certain type of New Yorker who just did the job every day, did something spectacular and risky every day, made the city work, and was able to talk um, with, I thought, great eloquence about, you know, how how you get a window to look clean, how you ensure there isn't a line down the middle. And then above and beyond the practicalities of the job, he also took time to look out from these great heights at New York City and see these views, feel this air, this high up air that no one else gets to feel staring across the city and and so i found that when you speak to people about what they do and give them a chance to talk about their jobs there is often a poetry that they that they see and that they want to convey about about what they do and with marvin that poetry was certainly there he gave me a sense of you know the the gorgeousness the beauty of new york as the sun rises and you're out there Holding on to nothing but a belt, staring across these great distances. So I was very thankful to to run into him.
0: You also uh, formed long term relationships uh, with some of your subjects. One was a was a homeless man named Joe, who you talk about throughout the book. How did you meet him, and and how did that relationship evolve?
1: I met um, the the person who is Joe in the book at a at a wonderful meal um, that's served every Sunday at uh, St. Francis Xavier, it's called the Welcome Table, just off of Sixth Avenue. And our friendship developed over the course of uh, a few years. I felt very lucky to be able to spend time with someone who was certainly feeling a more punitive, sharper edge of the city. He he was homeless at the time and was able to talk to me with great candor and, and honesty about that experience. And I just knew that i wanted to include voices like his because part of the experience of being in new york is is walking past so many people dismissing people leaving a subway carriage because someone is is there and the more i got to know him the more i realized that these that these stories that these individuals have are are just necessary to the to the story of this of the city and i certainly had not Really grappled with the legacy of, of PTSD in the U.S. Um, from the '60s onward. So, so my friendship with him—we
0: should say Joe was a veteran.
1: Yes, a, a Vietnam veteran, and and um, and so I just uh, personally had never encountered, you know, uh, an individual who could tell me about these issues that were so close to him and. And it was a deeply meaningful relationship for me. And it, it provides a spine throughout the book because we were both, in a way, outsiders to the city.
0: Yeah. You're you're from Canada uh, originally, and you, you wrote a similar book to London. Uh, how was it different doing London than it was doing New York? They're both uh, incredibly vibrant cities. I think it was Samuel Johnson said, a man is tired of living when he's tired of London. Uh, Do you feel that way about London and New York? And how do the two differ for you?
1: They're both truly global cities. They are cities in which you will find someone from every country in the world, no matter who your other is, they will be in these cities, which is what makes them wonderful. I spent uh, about five years working on a, a book in London and the difference when I came to New York was, I think, purely in terms of presentation. People are generally people, but uh, there was more velocity, more, more speed. It took, it didn't take as long to get to the personal. There was no more self mythologizing in New York. More of a sense of performance, which is what New York has always been there for—a <laughs> a stage for whatever you want to perform. I spoke to a lawyer of. of very high-priced lawyer who loved New York because he could perform in its courtrooms in a way that he couldn't in a federal court. And I spoke to actors and singers, obviously, but the, that sense of performance seemed to be there for everyone. You know, even the woman who was plucking lice from the heads of children seemed to do so with a bit more of a sense of performance than you might have found elsewhere. So that was the big difference I found.
0: Right? Yeah. No, you you bring the city to life because uh, you you talk about how at the very beginning that that there's Every one of your senses when you're in New York is constantly being bombarded, and that can be good and bad, but it's definitely what it means to be in New York.
1: It's an overwhelming experience, and I do have a, a meditation teacher uh, in the book who talks about the toll of the sort of sensory overload and and uh, what, what life is like when there is so much of it coming at you, and a therapist who talks about the fact that the city is in the room with her and her clients almost always, you know, it's this presence, it's this force that's, that's always pressing on you, shaping you. And, um, and I was really drawn to people who could speak of the city in that way as a, as a kind of both a physical place, but also this, this force that, that has an effect on, on individuals.
0: Right. I'm a, I'm a very rare New Yorker in that I was actually born here. I didn't move here from somewhere else like the majority of New Yorkers did. And I love the city and get very upset when people tell me they think it's not going to come back from COVID. That it's uh, that that urban living is over. That people can work from anywhere. So why would they choose to be in New York? What What do you think after having spent so much time with the people here and in the city? Do you think it will recover, or will it be a very different place post COVID? Obviously, there are no right or wrong answers.
1: It'll be a different place, but um, I pity the naysayers. I mean, maybe it'll thin out a few people uh, who don't truly want to be there, but. (laughs) But the, the New Yorkers cannot help but exhibit resilience. You know that that is something that is unquestionable. Like there is no, in my mind, there is no danger of the city disappearing because it's full of people who have always been weighing whether or not they should stay, with whether or not they should go. You know, I was told by one man. I remember this vividly. That he said, "Of course, I'll leave if something really goes wrong in New York, but that has to be something more than." a pandemic or a terrorist attack or a superstorm or a financial crisis you know it has to be something big that happens and and i thought yeah that's that's what i you know heard from a lot of new Yorkers <laughs> that that certainly there would be a time to leave but but where would they ever find these satisfactions where would they ever find this kind of life and so i i just don't doubt that the that the city will continue on in some form, in a, perhaps a more exciting form, and perhaps a more inclusive form. Who knows? I have to be an optimist because I really love the place. So I'm, I'm cheering for it.
0: Yeah. I, I think I think you hit it on the nail, the nail on the head, especially saying it in a, in a more inclusive form. I think prices are going to go down, which is good for us all, and good for visitors to New York as well. Well, once again, we've been speaking with Craig Taylor the author of a beautiful new book. It's called New Yorkers, a city and its people in our time. Thank you so much, Craig, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So as I said at the start of the show today, we're focusing on both New York and Connecticut. And like our first guest, our next guest spent a lot of time speaking with New Yorkers and finding out what their lives are like now. But she spoke to a very specific group of New Yorkers. They were the workers at the Pierre Hotel in Manhattan. She is Jennifer Gonnerman. She wrote a terrific article in The New Yorker. It's called Behind the Scenes at a Five-Star Hotel. Welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Jennifer. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. So uh, let's start with the numbers, uh, because you 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 show some startling numbers in this piece that that show that the the health of this hotel and of the hotel industry could underlie the the financial health of the entire city. So can you walk us through how important this industry is to New York City?
2: Sure. The hospitality industry, restaurants and hotels is obviously crucially important to New York City, to the to the bottom line of the city, the income of the city. But just to narrow it down to hotels specifically, we had right before the pandemic, about 700 hotels in New York City, which employed about 55,000 people. It's an extraordinary wow. number.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and hotels historically in New York City are, you know, most- the majority of them are unionized. And for workers at unionized hotels, these jobs have really been a an escalator to the middle class. And that's been true for quite a while. So they were good jobs, you know, and jobs where somebody could perhaps put their kids through college, buy a home. And, you know, now the industry has been, as you know, completely decimated.
0: Yeah. And you see that when you talk about the Pierre. Now, the Pierre is a historic institution. Uh, For our listeners who may never have heard of the Pierre Hotel, can you give us a little portrait of that hotel and why it was so important in the industry?
2: Sure. The Pierre is one of the city's old grand hotels, uh, luxury hotels, five-star hotel. It opened in 1930. It's on the southeast corner of Central Park, prime location. You couldn't get a better location for a hotel. It's adjacent or it's, well, it's next door to the Sherry Netherland Hotel, and it's sort of across from the plaza. And it's just one of those hotels that's really been synonymous with New York City, with Manhattan for decades. And it's a place where you know, wealthy people went to get married, to go to events, to go to gala events, and, and not always wealthy, but, but often. And it's really woven into the memories of a lot of New Yorkers, especially longtime New Yorkers. And for that reason, I think it's Struggles like the struggles of so many of the city's hotels, right, has been very uh, difficult for for some people to walk. And for our listeners, if you ever saw the movie
0: Scent of a Woman, you saw Al Pacino doing the tango. I think it was the tango with a, a lovely young woman in the ballroom there. And you talk about the amount of money that was being brought in through the events of the pierre and it, it really was mind-blowing I, I I kind of knew but I had no idea the exact figures can you you t- share that with our listeners because I think it shows that even if people start coming again it's really the events that's going to help keep this institution afloat
2: I mean this was a hotel known for its events banquets weddings uh, galas luncheons you know breakfast meetings everything under the sun and half of the hotel's income, $40 million a year was being brought in through events. So the question of the hotel's future, you know, hinges on obviously failing hotel rooms, but also on the future of events, especially large events in New York City. I mean, their ballroom could hold, you know, 700, 800, 900 people. Yeah. Pretty extraordinary.
0: And, and, and not just the hotel. You talk about the people who would make these massive ice sculptures or fill the ballroom with a canopy of flowers, or do other extraordinary things to make these events very special. Now, what I thought made your article so special is you you concentrate on some of the people there. How have their lives changed since events stopped and since the hotel largely shut down? If you could tell us about a couple of the people.
2: Sure. The hotel shut down last March, so a little more than a year ago. And you know, almost everybody was out of work. Not everybody, but almost. And you know, now about a quarter of the folks are at work, um, but you know, plenty of people waiting to get that call that it's time for them to come back. At this particular hotel, they employed four hundred and thirty-five people, just to give you a sense of what that is. The workforce included sixty-two room attendants, eleven bellmen, three painters, eleven elevator operators, forty-three cooks. 17 laundry workers and 46 full-time banquet servers, and the list goes on and on. And most of those people are still, you know, as I said, waiting to be called back. But the people that I met there, people that are on the job now and people that are still laid off, were just so many extraordinary people. I mean, it's a a great place to work from what I was told. And people, once they get a job there, don't really want to leave. So they have a workforce that's much older than you might expect, 50s, 60s, even people in their 70s who are still on the job.
0: Yeah. And, and, and it, it, as you said, it was a good place to work. They had a, a nice employee cafeteria with a massaging chair. Uh, what do they think the future holds? Do they think that the, that the hotel will come back or will come back in a different form?
2: You know, obviously people are optimistic or at least clinging to optimism. And when I visited a few months ago, they were under Going a very serious renovation of their grand ballroom, which is sort of the most famous room, and investing quite a bit—it seemed investing quite a bit of money into you know redoing it—and obviously you wouldn't make that kind of investment if you didn't believe that it had a real future as part of the hotel, as as a way to generate income and and whatnot. Um, so obviously there's there is a, an investment there happening and a certain amount of optimism. They told me that they had 22 weddings already booked for 2022. Huh something like that, which is pretty extraordinary. Actually, I'm sorry, it was 32 weddings on the schedule for the year 2022. So I think there's a sense that it, it will all come back. But of course, nobody knows the exact timetable on that. And it's only recently that New York State changed its limits on how many people can attend a wedding. And it's now up to 150 as long as everyone tests negative. Right. And that's obviously central to the kind of future of this particular hotel. What do you think
0: the future holds? Do you have any personal thoughts on how they'll come back?
2: You know, I, I, I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. Yeah. There's something very sad about being in a hotel, any hotel that's empty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and uh, since especially a place like this, which is so old and so sort of majestic, you know, it's obviously built to be bustling with people, right? right? And not to have sort of empty, you know, beautiful lobbies. Well, in,
0: um, in your article, you take people into the presidential suite which is this majestic room with vast windows overlooking Central Park and six bedrooms and its own kitchen and furnishings that look like they should be in a palace somewhere. So it was a unique place. Yeah. That's, that's my worry. As a, am a native New Yorker. I'm, I'm worried about how the city is going to come back. And you you, you don't want just the elite part of the city to come back but the elite part as you show in this article underlays the lives of of middle-class folks
2: yeah no the fate of the fate of the whole city is sort of on the line in these post-pandemic months both midtown where you know the pier is and which has been especially hard hit since it was home to so many sort of office buildings and you know then there's Broadway and there's just a lot you know it's we'll see how the year pans out I mean I'm hopeful but obviously I Know no more than anyone else, right? In
0: terms of right. How, well, I know. I hope you revisit it, because I, I, I you you uh, profile some of the people who work there, and I became very fond of them. And I want to hear, you know, what happens to their lives. It's it's a wonderful article. Once again, we've been speaking with Jennifer Gonerman. She is a staff writer for the wonderful uh, New Yorker magazine. I I eagerly anticipate it every week. And she wrote an article called Behind the Scenes at a Five-Star Hotel. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Take care.
0: Our next guest is Anastasia Mills-Healy, who has a new book out. It's called Secret Connecticut A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. Congratulations, Stacia, and welcome to the Frommer Travel Show.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you for having
0: me. So this must have been a fun one to research. How did you go about finding all of these tidbits about history and culture and the surprisingly interesting state of Connecticut?
3: I I first started by going to the library, and I took out every single book that had the word Connecticut in its title. And libraries weren't open, but I was still able to to take out books, and so that's where I started. And then I I used search engines, and I um, asked family and friends, and um, I looked at at blogs. I I just I dug, 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 and dug, and right. when something was interesting, I I kept digging, and I looked for original sources. And um, I, I did come up with a lot of interesting stories. I've lived in Connecticut a long time, and I've written about Connecticut for a long time. And I thought I could come up with 84 stories. That's a template of the book, 84 mm. stories. I thought I could come up with at least half of them without without doing a lot of research, but I was wrong. <laughs> so I came up with about 10 because they just weren't as fascinating as I wanted the book to be. Right. And um, I'm very excited about what s- stories I did come up with. And it's really resonating with people. And I'm, I'm very encouraged.
0: Well, what resonated with me, or maybe what surprised me, was how many firsts were from Connecticut. Like yes, uh, some of them you had to twist a little bit, like America's first president, not from Virginia. Who was that?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Before the the American Constitution, there was the Articles of the Confederation. And um, that was the first document, the founding document of the United States. When 13 um, colonies ratified this document, the Continental Congress was in charge of that. And the president of the Continental Congress was Samuel Huntington, hmm. and he was from Connecticut. So technically, he is the first president of the United States, because that was when the United States first became the United States, was first named that in the Articles of Confederation.
0: Was he a good president? Or
3: He was. Yeah. He led in a time of war. And there was a lot going on, and uh, he was well respected. You, and he you got never a lot hear
0: about knowledge. him. It's very interesting. You never hear
3: about him. Yeah. I've known that there was a Samuel Huntington homestead, but I didn't know who he was or what he accomplished until I started researching this. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I don't think people know about this. Right. So, so people can. The criteria put in the book. And
0: people can go to the homestead in Connecticut, I guess, to learn more about yes. him.
3: Yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And it's actually in a place called Scotland, Connecticut. (laughs) That seems bizarrely
0: appropriate. Also, there was a first for tourism. You say that the first spa resort was in Connecticut. Now, what did a spa resort look like back in the day or the first one?
3: (laughs) Well, we have a record of John Adams' who went in 1771 to a town called Stafford Springs, whose springs, the the Native Americans who lived there um, uh, talked about the springs and um, then the, the white settlers took to the waters and said, "Ooh, this heals this, that and the other thing. And then word got around and John Adams was supposedly a hypochondriac oh. and his doctor knew about these springs and said, Go take the waters in Stafford Springs. And so he did, and he wrote a diary. So he was a spa journalist. You can add that to his resume. <laughs> but he he doesn't make it sound
0: very appealing. He talks about no. a mug being broken into pieces and clearly glued back together, and then he has to drink water that tastes like steel. And and I love what you have in the book. You you say that people went there to solve or to treat scrofulous humors. Yes. What part I, I of the body know. do you I I I have a I have a guess, but it's a little it's
3: <laughs> I did Google it when I was researching the book, but um
0: I don't remember you know, now. My, what it so was. it's not in men's underwear. <laughs> that's that's what I, I thought think. when I thought scrofulous humours. I don't know. Right. As well, there are some other places that sound really appealing that you can visit, like the Thimble Islands, a part of Connecticut I'd never heard of. Where, what are the Thimble Islands?
3: Connecticut has its own archipelago. So there are hundreds of islands, these beautiful little islands off uh, the coast. It's, it's about midway up the coast. It's um, off Stony Creek in the Branford area. And there's a little town called Stony Creek that is just so precious. And there's a little museum there and there's a dock. And from this dock, you can take narrated tours of the islands um, with the captains talking about how Tom Thumb lived here, how uh, Trudeau and her name Jane, Jane Polly used to live hmm. on the Thimble Islands. So they would talk about uh, the different histories and, but when I was, I wanted to include the Thimble Islands, but I didn't know what exactly I wanted to include about them because right. like, like you, other people didn't know about them and they're really beautiful. So I, I contacted the curator of the Stony Creek Museum and she put me in touch with a, a, a homeowner because most of these islands, um, well, actually there are only 12, about 12 that are inhabited um, and they're private homes. So there there used to be a hotel, you know, back 100 years ago um, that was very popular, but there aren't hotels now. So there's no way to get on one of these islands, I thought, unless you know somebody. So she put me in touch with somebody. And so there I was in October, off season, at the end of a dock, not knowing whose boat I was getting into. And it was such an adventure. And he was so lovely. And he told me everything he knew about the Thimble Islands and... About the community, and it was so interesting. And I saw his homes, and because um, he he has homes on uh, one island, but it's called Cut in Two. It's actually two islands mm. that are connected. Anyway, it was just very interesting. Do you know how they but got their one, name? The Thimble Islands are named for a thimble berry. So it's a type of a berry oh. that, that grew there. Interesting. Um, I like to think that, that they're, they're small and they're thimble-like, sort of craggy and shaped, somewhat rocky. Uh-huh. But anyway, so I did find out later that there is an island, one of the Thimble Islands, the farthest one out called Outer Island, that you can actually go visit in the warm weather. It's a national wildlife refuge Mm, and it's free. Yeah, no,
0: it just looked beautiful in your book. And who knew that Connecticut was such a great place to celebrate various holidays? I got to say, I want to see the Boombox Parade. That sounds hilarious.
3: Can you explain what that is? I was very disappointed that they didn't hold it last year, obviously. Yeah. They weren't, uh, you know. No parades. Hopefully this, yeah, hopefully this year. Um, but since 1986, the town of Willimantic um, has been having what's called a boombox parade. And and it's in the 1980s, there were such things as boomboxes before people listened to music on their phones. And they couldn't find a marching band for their July 4th parade. So... They said, okay, everybody bring your boom boxes, tune into our radio station, and we'll be playing marching band music. So everybody did that. And it was like a normal parade, otherwise. Right. You know, there were politicians and fire engines and people dressed up and all of that. And it was a nice parade. And everybody just had such a good time having the boom boxes right. that they made it a tradition. And so ever since 1986, they've been having a boom box parade, and it's the longest standing boombox parade in the nation. I guess other people... Other places that do this? Idea. I've
0: never heard about this before. I thought that was <laughs> hilarious. And yes, what about... What what town in Connecticut is known for Christmas? Well, Bethlehem. Ah. There is a town in Connecticut <laughs> makes <sense>.
3: Bethlehem. <laughs> yep. And um, it's for a town of 3,000 people, it certainly has a lot going on. And it all started with... With the first, uh, the nation's first theological seminary is in Bethlehem, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and you can go see this um, house, a uh, colonial house. It's called the Be- Be- Bell- Bellamy Faraday House, and this uh, preacher had students, and so it, this was the first theological seminary. Okay, so that was the 1700s. In the in the 1947, a an abbey was. Opened there, the Abbey of Regina Laudis, and so they're they're cloistered nuns there, and a lot about this the, the yeah the Abbey is is very fascinating. So the biggest thing there uh, the, of note is that there it, one of the nuns. He kissed Elvis. So she was. In- <laughs> Before, Before she, she was movies. a nun, I hope? Before she was a nun. <laughs> okay, good. <She> started movies <laughs> with Elvis Presley. Her name is Dolores Hart, and she's still living. She joined the Abbey in 1966. And this was after she starred in um, King Creole and Loving You. And mm-hmm. she was also in um, Where the Boys Are. So she had um, quite the cinematic career. Wow. And then she completely turned the tables and became a cloistered nun. And they, they produce award winning cheese. Um, they've been in a, a Michael Pollan documentary about the cheese mm. and their processes. And they have this crush. If anybody's ever been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, at Christmas time, you know the beautiful, beautiful Neapolitan crush yeah, that's, that's there. And so this Abbey has a sister to that crush, mm. And, it's, and it's, uh, you can see it in a barn. Of all places. Wow.
0: Well, I know <laughs> the the one at the Metropolitan is I want to say from like the 1600s. I mean, it's a really yes, it's- historic, gorgeous yes. creche that was created in in Naples, which is still a amazing major mm-hmm. center for this type of thing. Is that one as as uh, antique, do you know?
3: Yes. yes, yes it is. Wow. And um and as uh, Smithsonian magazine did a story a few years ago about the restoration. So the Metropolitan Museum of Art came into um, the abbey to restore their, their crush.
0: Wow, very yes. interesting. So
3: it just just goes on and on there. But then you can't forget the Christmas town festival, which has been going on for a long period of time since the 1980s, and people go to Bethlehem by the thousands to mail their Christmas cards. So they're postmarked Bethlehem. Ah, And they also have a special stamp
0: each year, right?
3: They have a special stamp. Every year they create a new one. And it it just makes it a really special experience for for people. They really welcome people coming for for Christmas festivities. Well, kind of
0: corollary to that, I, I thought you had a very, very moving story about Martin Luther King Jr. and his time in Connecticut. Can you share that?
3: Sure. This is something that is not well known at all. So, their tobacco was a big crop in Connecticut—sixteen um, thousand acres hmm. worth of tobacco—and in the early part of the 1900s, you know, up until about 1950, 1960, they um, had these big crops, and they needed seasonal workers, and they found most of their seasonal workers through through colleges—they hmm. were students—and many from the south. So Morehouse College was one of the colleges that took students to help pay for their college by, by working over the summers, and they were housed in dormitories. And Martin Luther King Jr. went to Morehouse, and in 1947, 1945 first, and then he came back in 1947, he was part of this group who, um, who worked in the tobacco fields. Right. And it was his first time out of the segregated South. And he wrote letters home to his mother saying, expressing wonder about how life was so different for him right. in the North, how he was able to worship wherever he wanted. He went to integrated church for the first time. He sang in the choir acquired first church in Simsbury. He actually preached for the first time to to the students, to yeah. his fellow students. And when he applied to seminary, he marked that moment in time as being the reason why he wanted to go into the seminary. Well, I thought that was astonishing
0: because he was only 15 when when his fellow students who recognized greatness in him, obviously, asked him to be the one to preach their sermons at at, uh, the farm. And so that's when he he did it for the first time.
3: yeah, he wrote home to his mom that it was 100, I think, 107 boys that, that he preached to. He said, I have a text and I'm preaching. <laughs> I am the preacher.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it, it really was a sto- an astonishing story and a very moving one, I thought.
3: And I later learned that that other notable people who were part of this program, Arthur Ashe, huh. Thurgood Marshall, and Hattie McDaniel. Wow. And Mahalia Jackson. They all worked on tobacco farms in Connecticut. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Now, another
0: thread of history that you brought into the book were the missile sites, the missile shelter sites that are all over the United States and Connecticut. Tell us a little bit about that and how people can experience them today.
3: This was an aspect of history that I had never thought about, that during the Cold War, We didn't have the the missile systems, you know, the technology that we have now, bunkers in Colorado, et cetera, et cetera, that each town had had their own missile sites. And they were staffed 24-7 for many years, from the 1950s to the 1960s, and they were ready to shoot down any foreign um, attacks, so any planes that were coming. Thank God that never happened, but they were at the ready, and there were 12 sites in Connecticut, And there is one that is standing today, and it's in Portland, Connecticut. It's in a state forest in a town called Portland in Connecticut. We have a Scotland, we have a Portland, we have a Bethlehem.
0: (laughs) Well, many, many states
3: do, but yeah. We have a Greenwich. And some of them are archaeological sites now too, aren't they? This this one, this one specifically is. And you can this is the only one that that is able to be visited now. The other ones have been adapted and reused and aren't in their original state anymore.
0: Right, right. Well, it is a delightful book. Once again, it's called Secret Connecticut, a guide to the weird, wonderful, and obscure. Thank you, Stasha, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you. And that's it for this week's show. Since the CDC has said that vaccinated Americans can travel without worry domestically, I can say without worry to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week.